Okay, it's a little unusual for me to be up here in the very first part of church, so I forgot to turn on the mic. But 
Amen and amen and amen. So I was thinking about this place of the king is here and how we love to come in and worship him and feel his presence. But the king is with us every day if we are a follower of Jesus. But I was thinking about how powerful that is, and yet we've come today to begin the celebration this evening of Feast of Trumpets, and there is a day when the king will rule and reign here, and that day is coming soon, and I rejoice in that place. Today I have a scripture for us to open with on page 82. And while you're turning there, I'll just remind you of the places that we are lifting up before the Lord. Um, Raul Jr. is continuing on his treatment, and uh, Lee Martin is continuing on his treatment. And so we continue to ask for the Lord to move in these places that they might uh, know his presence and see him as he works in these places. And Martin Placencia is still uh, continuing on his journey. And whatever God is doing there, uh, we just rejoice in that place as he continues to move. And then little Kylie Grace, my granddaughter that we've been praying for, um, we don't know what the Lord's doing there either, but we continue to lift her up. And I'm excited this week on Tuesday, the doctors will determine if they will allow her to be born on Thursday of this week or if they'll push it back one more week. And, of course, they're trying to make decisions in an earthly manner, but we know the Lord has already determined the day that she will be born. And so I'm just excited to see what he's doing in this place and each of the places that we're lifting up before him. So let me uh, read you this scripture this morning. It's about, um, it's with the understanding of talking about Feast of Trumpets and the blowing of the trumpets and what that really means. And uh, Daniel will be talking about that more and more today and I look forward to that message. But I was reminded this morning of a couple of places, the blowing of the trumpets. The first place is to call his people together. But it's just as Daniel's been teaching us in Philippians. It's not a place particularly just to be called physically, but it's to be called together spiritually, united in him. So it is a place that we do come together, and we will come together tonight at 6 o'clock and celebrate Feast of Trumpets, and we will physically gather. But the reason that we're physically gathering is because we are spiritually united in him. And I just rejoice in that place. It's also the blowing of the trumpet reminds us of the place to be consecrated. And so it's a time between now and even this evening that we want to be humbled before the Lord that we might bring ourselves in a place that he would consecrate us before him. It's also a time of calling his people to war. And I know in these last few days before he returns, there will be places that we are called to battle. And it's a time of being ready for that battle. And it's also a time for the, 
to be ready for the coronation of our king. What an amazing day that will be. But I want to share with you this verse that he gave me this morning that is this place of being united together and this place of being consecrated. And it comes out of Exodus. And it's just as he has used Moses to lead the children out of Egypt. And we're going to start in verse 4. It says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all the people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And these are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So if you'll pray with me, please. Father God, we just come before you, Father, excited and rejoicing for this opportunity to come in an assembly and celebrate who you are, Lord. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for giving us your laws and your truths and your feasts that would teach us and help us to walk in your ways. Lord, it is our greatest desire that today you would move in our hearts, that you would call us into the deeper places of being this kingdom of priests that would speak boldly to those around us, that would begin to work it throughout the places that you allow us to go and be, Father, that people would see that we are set apart, that we are different, not because of who we are, Father, but because who you are in us. So, Lord, we come today rejoicing, shouting out that you are here, that you do live inside of us, that you do have control and authority of all the things around us and that you cause things to be if we are surrendered to you. And so, Lord, let us be those vehicles that you would use throughout, your, throughout our journey and throughout your plan. Lord, we just look forward today to the words that you have through Daniel, your servant. Lord, may each word be moving in our hearts and our minds in a way that would draw us to yourself. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.
Well, good morning. Um, I'm so excited to be here and to share this word. It's, it's kind of like I just want to jump right to the end of things. Um, it's a good thing that I'm in the back when we sing because there are certain places where you are in such agreement with the words that you're singing that I just want to shout. I can't clap loud enough, I can't sing loud enough, and I'd probably be a burden on others if I was any closer than I am. Today is a day that the Lord has made. We apply that often and we mean it for our own ends, but today, this evening, right now, we are on the eve of the Feast of Trumpets, and this is a day that the Lord has ordained. In the spring, we studied about the Lord's spring feast, the fulfilled feast, that Jesus uh, died on Passover, that he was buried on unleavened bread, that he was raised on first fruits. And we're excited about the things that Jesus accomplished at the cross. And like those feasts, those feasts represent an event the Passover, the unleavened bread, the Exodus event where the Lord accomplished his ends. And today we're going to begin to study about another event. So the the fall feast that we'll study about, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles are a culminating event together of Jesus' second coming. 
Jesus will return one day for his bride, for his church, for his people, for his followers, and he will accomplish his ends then. And so today we, we will study and be reminded of what the Lord is doing in these days. So today we're going to study about the Feast of Trumpets, and next week we will study about the Day of Atonement, and the following week we'll study about the Feast of Tabernacles. And I look forward to this time of year not just because of the celebration that we share, that we get to come together in these understandings, but because of what they signify. That exactly as, as uh, Deborah had shared and Rebecca had prayed, that this is an appointed time by the Lord for us to be reminded of who he is. So I want to, to ask you to consider Jesus' return. What does this mean to you? When you think about Jesus coming again, what feelings do you have? What thoughts do you have? What images come to your mind? For many, this is a really difficult thing to imagine. It's just too, too far off to really matter. Almost too unreal to really expect. And so it really doesn't have any effect on their lives. For others, Jesus' second coming consumes their thoughts. They think about the chaos and the calamity and all the things going on in this world, and they live in anticipation of this day of the Lord, right? They see all the circumstances around them as indicative of the Lord's coming, and they anticipate this day. So these two extremes can have many emotions and feelings. For some, apathy because it is just too distant and too unreal to really imagine. For others, excitement because surely Jesus' return will happen in our lifetime. Surely. For others, it is a frustration to live in this broken world of chaos. And so we cannot wait for the Lord's return because it means an escape. So as I mentioned, Jesus' second coming is an event much like the Passover of Israel. And when Jesus returns, it will include the fulfillment of his feasts. We cannot understand Jesus' return out of the context of these feasts. right? We have a culture, a church culture, that's consumed with Jesus' second coming. There are great dramatic books written about it. There are movies about it. We imagine what it will be like when he'll fly in on a white horse and he'll rescue us from all that is going on wrong in this world, right? But like those in Israel, they could not be delivered from slavery without the atoning blood over the doorpost of the house. They couldn't be delivered from bondage in Egypt without passing through the Red Sea and relying on God's mighty hand and outstretched arm to do his purpose. So it is for us as we anticipate the Lord's second coming. It has to be in concert with his feasts. 
So this feast is, is known um, by many as Rosh Hashanah. Maybe you've heard that as the popular name. It's the Hebrew name that means the first of the year or top of the year. And this name gets its meaning because Israel went into captivity in Babylon. And while they were there, it just so happened that the Feast of Trumpets fell on the first of the Babylonian year. And so in order to keep their feast, they celebrated it quietly on the new year of the Babylonian kingdoms and gods and all of those things. But Rosh Hashanah is not in Scripture, nowhere to be found. Today it's celebrated by many as more of an American New Year with fireworks and music and lots of celebration. But what is in Scripture is Yom Teruah, Day of the Blowing of Trumpets. And this is so important because like us understanding Jesus' second coming, we have to understand his feast day, not a holiday. We have to understand the spiritual and not just the physical. So let's look at a few scriptures to understand this feast day. Let's turn first to Numbers chapter 10. If you're in the church's Bible on page 163, Numbers chapter 10. There are many things that we, we talk about in Scripture and we, we take for granted. We, we imagine the, the, the shofar and the trumpets here and we just kind of assume what their meaning is. So here in Numbers chapter 10, um, God will tell Moses that the trumpet would be used to summon the people of Israel, exactly as Deborah was talking about earlier to summon the people to warn them of battle of the approaching enemy. So we'll read together verses 1 through 10 of chapter 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them a hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing movement of the camps. When they blow both of them, all the congregation shall gather before you at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. But if they blow only one, then the leaders, the heads of the divisions of Israel, shall gather to you. When you sound the advance, the camps that lie on the east side shall then begin their journey. When you sound the advance the second time, then the camps that lie on the south side shall begin their journey. They shall sound the call for them to begin their journeys. When the assembly is out to be gathered together, you shall blow, but not sound the advance. The sons of Aaron, the priests, shall blow the trumpets, and these shall be to you as an ordinance forever throughout your generations. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets, and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies." Also in the day of your gladness and your appointed feast and at the beginning of months you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. 
So 10 verses take up this explanation of how serious God is of using the trumpet as a battle cry. The trumpet here was a plea, not just for God's people to assemble, but for God's deliverance. And that's exactly what the Feast of Trumpets is. It is a plea for God's deliverance. Turn with me next to Exodus, excuse me, Leviticus 23, back just a few pages on page 139. Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus 23, Moses is going through all of the feasts that the Lord has appointed and offering explanation of what the Lord is calling the Israelites to do on these days. So read with me verses 23 through 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. Next, turn with me to Numbers 29 on page 189 of the church's Bible. Numbers 29, page 189. In Numbers, we read a little more detail about some of the the expectations for this day. Moses says, And in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, this is verse 1, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. For you it is a day of blowing the trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. The grain offering shall be fine, flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, and one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. And also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to make atonement for you. Besides the burnt offering with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, and their drink offerings according to their ordinance as a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. So in In the Lord's Torah, in the Lord's law, there are only two main passages that explain what this day, blowing of trumpets, means. Isn't that kind of interesting? That God would appoint a day each year and that it would be primarily concerned with blowing trumpets. This may seem bizarre to us or peculiar to us that we would gather together and just blow trumpets but I believe the Israelites knew exactly the intent of the Lord for this day to be revived from spiritual drowsiness to have a spiritual alarm clock a blast and like us each morning when our alarm wakes us up from our slumber We've got a choice to spring out of bed for the Lord's purpose or go, okay, I'll hit snooze one more time. The prophets in the Old Testament understood this day. Turn with me next to Joel chapter 2 in the church's Bible, page 1052. Joel chapter 2. 
after many generations of celebrating this feast, of blowing trumpets, of sounding the spiritual alarm, the prophets will, will give insight of how this day of blowing trumpets is linked to the day of the Lord, when Jesus would come in judgment. In Joel 2, let's read just verse 1. Joel says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, for it is at hand. Next, turn over just a few pages to the right to Zephaniah 1, page 1086. Zephaniah 1. We'll read together in Zephaniah 1, verses 14 through 16. Zephaniah is saying this, The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out, That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. What these prophets are saying is that the day of the Lord, which always meant to Israel, the day the Lord would return, the day of the Lord will will come with the sound of a trumpet. And it can be a great day of peace, a day of rescue, a day where we can expect the Lord's work. Or it can be a day of terror and fury. Because we are not prepared to meet our maker. And he will come like a thief in the night. The prophet's job is to awaken Israel. To say, hear this in your spiritual drowsiness. Don't hit snooze again. Get up, get out of bed, and hear the word of the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus' apostles and his disciples would understand this day of the Lord and his second coming that would begin with the blowing of the trumpet. Turn with me next to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, page 1325. We'll read just one verse here in 15 to illustrate what Paul is saying. He says in chapter 15, verse 52, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. Turn next to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, page 1358. 1 Thessalonians 4, page 1358. 
1 Thessalonians, Paul is comforting those in the church who have had loved ones who have died. And he's explaining what the second coming will mean for those who have died and those who remain. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an angel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So what we're reading here is, is two different understandings from the prophets to the New Testament of the same day of the same experience. The prophets write to those who have known the Lord, who have left the Lord's purpose. They say, get up, hear this trumpet blast. Paul writes to those who are in Christ Jesus, and he said, we can await this day with great expectation and comfort and peace of what the Lord will accomplish. Let's look at one last place. Turn to Revelation chapter 8, page 1431. Revelation chapter 8, page 1431. We'll read just one verse here in Revelation 8. We'll read verse 6. John says, so the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The next few chapters, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, explain these different trumpet sounds. Many, many angels are blasting trumpets to prepare the way of Jesus' return. Four chapters in the Revelation, John explains how trumpets are blasted and how this must take place before Jesus returns. Scripture paints this amazingly clear picture that God will return for his people, that God will return for all. Whether we are found his people or we are found his enemy, Jesus will return and it will be preceded with the blast of a trumpet. Tonight is the Feast of Trumpets, the blowing of trumpets, and it is an invitation and a commandment for turning from sin, for repentance, to turn to our Creator, but more significantly for us who are believers to anticipate and prepare for His coming. We expect His deliverance. Like those in the Exodus, the Passover event, more fully now, we expect Jesus' deliverance. And that's the message that the Lord is leading us to today, that the Feast of Trumpets is an expectation of deliverance. The world can celebrate this day in many different ways, but those who follow Jesus are awaiting this, deliverance. For several weeks we have been studying in Paul's letter to the Philippians. And it's there that the Lord has given me some understanding of how we as believers are to live in this world and anticipate his return. Paul's very words are to have an earnest expectation. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, page 1348. Philippians chapter 1, page 1348.
I'm so excited about this passage because it is one that is well quoted, is well talked about, and I think one that misunderstood might be an understatement, but misvalued. Last week we talked about how Paul explains his situation to the church in Philippi, how he he wants them to know about his situation that they shouldn't be concerned, right? They've, they've sent a person from their congregation to Paul with some money, with some financial support, and to, to be a friend and a comfort to him. And Paul wants to assure them that the things that are going on that may seem chaotic, that may seem troubling to them, that Paul is certain what God is doing. You'll remember how Paul talks about many of the prison guards, the Praetorian guard, the emperor's troops have come to know Jesus, and that many new believers have grown confident in the Lord's word to share it with others. So we're going to pick up there and read verses 19 through 26. Paul says, For I know this will turn out for my deliverance, through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, According to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, that I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be made more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. So there's a lot going on in this passage, so we'll, we'll kind of start with just broadly what's going on. Um, we, we've talked about it again and again that there is a real possibility that Paul dies. Death is a serious threat to him. I don't think Paul would say that it was if it wasn't. Now remember, he's not complaining about it, he's not saying woe is me, but he needs them to understand the extremes that he's going to tell them about. He says death is so serious because he's in prison, right? Sickness, malnourishment, danger are all there, and he could die. He's also awaiting his trial in Rome. Um, Paul had met before... Um, Felix, the governor of Judea, he'd met before Festus, the governor of Judea. They had sent him to Rome, and he had met before uh, King Agrippa, and now he is waiting an audience with the emperor. Any one of those men could rule that Paul be executed. Death is a real possibility. And Paul says that, frankly, he's not sure what's going to happen. He doesn't tell the Philippians, it's going to be okay, my God has overcome death, he can overcome this. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm not really sure what the outcome will be, but I am sure of what the outcome will be. Do you hear that? 
He's not certain of his circumstances, but he is certain of who God is. So what Paul isn't circumstance, uh, what Paul isn't certain about is his circumstances or what he really wants. He's not sure whether he's going to live or whether he's going to die. And he's really not sure whether he wants to be with Christ or whether he wants to stay and minister to the Philippians. He says in verse 22 that if he lives, this is great news because he will have fruit for his labor, meaning he'll get to continue ministering to them. And then in verse 23, he says he's hard-pressed. He's, he's, he's really having a difficult time imagining what he wants most. Either he'll get to be with Jesus, which would be better, would be best, or it's more necessary that he stays with the Philippians. See, he, he knows this body. He loves this body of believers, and he thinks, I could leave, and I'd be with Jesus, and it would be incredible, but I don't want to miss the opportunity to share more of what Jesus has done in my life with these great brothers and sisters. We shouldn't misunderstand Paul, though. He's, he's not conflicted for the reasons that we might be, right? He's not like, oh, gosh, I just finally got this promotion that I've been working for my entire life. I don't really want to leave. I want to see it through. I want to see what happens. I've worked so hard for it. He's not conflicted because he wants to see his kids grown up. He wants to see them graduate and get married and live full lives. He's not conflicted because he says there's just so much life out there. There's so much I want to do and accomplish and experience. It's for none of those things. Paul is pretty much in the very opposite of all of those conditions, wouldn't you say? In prison with bad food. Being shirked around from leader to leader to leader to be potentially ridiculed by the secular leaders and his former brothers and sisters in Judaism, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Much different conditions than we face. Paul's conflict is leaving while there remains an opportunity for the Lord's purpose and gospel to be done. And his feelings for death are kind of, kind of difficult for us to identify with, aren't they? I mean, for Paul, really, he just, you know, really doesn't care about life or death. They don't really serve ends to him, it would seem. I think for us, it's difficult because culturally, we're really uncomfortable with death at all. We're, we're almost embarrassed by the idea of suffering, this idea of being degraded. Yet Paul uses these terms so casually, but so powerfully, because for him, living means fulfilling God's calling. And dying means fellowship with the Lord. His attitude is pretty much out of this world. Everything in his life conforms to the gospel, to God's purpose. Everything. His physical comfort, his opinions of others, by others, the position before the civil authorities who hold his life in the balance, and whether or not he lives or dies. All these things 
conform to the Lord's purpose. He's telling us that God does not conform to our desires. God does not bend to our wheel, our hopes, our dreams. But we are to conform to God's purpose, his will, and his dreams. So now that we've talked about what Paul's uncertain about, let's talk about what Paul is certain about. In verse 18, Paul rejoices because the gospel is being preached, right? This is what we talked about last week. He, he rejoices because the gospel is being preached. But then he says in the second part, he, well, he says, and in this I rejoice, that's the gospel, yes, and will rejoice. He's not saying he will rejoice about the gospel being preached, as he's talking about, but he's saying he will rejoice for another reason. And that's the reason we read about in verse 19. Let's read in 19 and the first part of 20. This is why Paul rejoices. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope. That is why Paul has joy. He doesn't have joy because it's Friday and they had lobster in the prison. He doesn't have joy because Epaphroditus came and finally he can hang out with his buddy and get some updates on current affairs. He has joy because he's certain of what God is going to do. Whatever happens, Paul can have joy because of his deliverance. It says there in 19, for I know this will turn out for my deliverance. To say, I know this will turn out, means it doesn't look like it's going to turn out. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look the way he wants. It doesn't look the way others would want. But he knows it will turn out for his deliverance. This is the word salvation that we use over and over and over in the New Testament to talk about our eternal life. It's the same word that Paul would have used describing what happened in the exodus. Exodus, deliverance, salvation. And Paul applies this term of deliverance and salvation, not just one-dimensionally to the chains he's in in prison, but it equally applies to the wrath of God satisfied on the cross, that Paul will see Jesus. See, he doesn't, he doesn't mutually distinguish these things. He doesn't go, well, I've got eternal life, and that's good, but I've got to endure all of this horrible stuff, and that's unfortunate. He sees them equally and he says, God will accomplish deliverance and salvation in any and everything in this life and in the next life when I see Jesus. Paul does not compartmentalize his life. Verse 19 has this really cool Greek statement that connects these two ideas of the supply of the Holy Spirit and the Philippians' prayers, as if they're unified, as if they're connected. Which is to say that we shouldn't minimize the power and authority of our prayers. Our prayers are not about us saying great words and sounding good and being in front of men and women and looking holy. Our prayers are about aligning with the Spirit of God, about being unified with the Spirit of God. And when we're unified with the Spirit, believers can be unified with the Spirit. 
Paul says these two things come together because you're going to pray and come in unity with the Spirit, and the Spirit is going to come and refresh me in the things the Lord is doing. My deliverance will turn out fine. Paul is inviting them not to be not to be worried about him or confused or disheartened, but to align with the Spirit for God's purpose. Then verse 20, Paul qualifies his joy further and how he knows this. He says, according to my earnest expectation. This is my new favorite phrase. He says, according to my earnest expectation, in verse 20, and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. This word, this phrase really, earnest expectation, is used only twice in Scripture. It's used here, and it's used in Romans 8.19, where Paul is talking about the certainty that when Jesus comes again, we will be resurrected and received a new body. We will be a new creation. So Paul uses this phrase only twice to be equally certain about what the Lord will accomplish in his returning and in the Spirit's supply right now. This word has three parts. It's really like a, I don't even know if there's such a thing as a, it's not just a compound word, it's like a triple compound word. And the first part means away from. It means to, to leave The second part means the head, as in your head and my head. And the third part means thinking, thoughts, mindset. And this word almost imagines a runner that's sprinting towards the finish line. And, you you know, I'm not going to try and and be perfect here, but, you know, when runners go like this, they're, they're trying to move as much of their body forward that they might win the race, right? Probably almost to a fault, they're straining back and muscles, uh, back and neck muscles, because your body shouldn't be contorted in such a way like this, but running at incredible speed, they put their head as far forward as possible that they might win the race. Now, we know Paul likes these Olympic race-type metaphors, but really what he's describing here is something a little different. He's describing that their head should be outstretched away from what seems right. Turning away from what is lesser towards what is greater. It's an intense expectation. Intense eagerness. This is what Paul has for the Lord's work being accomplished. Intense eagerness. He's not walking this race He's not power walking this race. He is running this race that looks chaotic and foolish to others with as much intensity and fervor as his body can allow. Turning from what is lesser towards what is greater. He goes on to contrast a couple of ideas. One is being ashamed, which is What many think Paul is, is in shame. He contrasts this with God being magnified, with God being glorified. The second half of verse 20, he says, but with all boldness, excuse me, let me back up. 
Let's just read all of 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether life or death. There are many that want Paul to just leave prison like Peter did. They want him to just vanish out of there. Woe is Paul. There's so much he could be doing if he wasn't in prison. And Paul says we can't confuse circumstances with God's purpose. I am exactly where I need to be. In nothing will I be shamed, but in all things, whether life or death, my body will be a glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. These two words, shame and magnified, are well-known words among Bible readers. The Psalms are filled with examples about shame among men and glory for the Lord. Let me read a couple of verses from the Psalms. Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. Let those be ashamed who deal treacherously without cause. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name forever. Paul is not saying that he or anyone will not be put to shame because of their relationship with Jesus. But what Paul is saying is that those who are truly concerned with the Lord's purpose will not be shamed before him. Before men, Paul's shame and our shame is certain. It will happen. But before the Lord, he will be glorified. We've got to get on Paul's level. We've got to get on the spiritual level that leaves the things of this world behind. Otherwise, there's no glory for the Lord to be had. Paul's victory isn't because of or dependent on his circumstances or even what happens in the trial. I should tell you, Paul was, most believe, martyred many years later. Paul was executed. His death was certain. But it's really not important to the story. It wasn't important to Paul. His victory isn't dependent on circumstances. Instead, he won't be shamed because Christ will be exalted by his obedience, whether he is dead or alive. This meant that even if he is sentenced to death, he won't be put to death by his enemies, right? Even if Paul is allowed to be executed, Paul's not angry with them. He doesn't call them enemies. That's what it's talking about in the Psalms. That it would be a part of the Lord's plan that the gospel may be preached. Oh, if we could see that in our circumstances. If we could align with what the Lord wants and the Lord's doing and not what we want. The end will always justify the means. God is sovereign and all these things, whether they make sense to the Philippians or us, will turn out for God's glory. It's because of this that Paul can say, verse 21, so often minimized and misunderstood, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That scripture really makes no sense whatsoever if we don't understand Paul's motive and Paul's heart. It's because of all these things that he said 
that to live means being in Christ. It's, it's as if he's talking about his very existence. Living, breathing, existing means I'm in Christ and nothing else. Think about a few of the verses that, that Paul writes to other churches. In Romans, he says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in the newness of life. He's saying if we have been crucified in our flesh, if we have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and in the Spirit, we are to be a new life, no longer for our purpose, but for the Lord's. In Galatians 2, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for, for me. And in Colossians chapter 3, he says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. See, if this has been the dedication that we have made, to leave our ways, to be saved in the name of Jesus, then it's no longer Ron or Luann or Susan or Daniel that are living, but it is Christ that are living through Susan and Ron and Luann and Daniel. It has to be. We've got nothing left. And if that's the case, that when he returns with all his glory, we will be unified with him. What Paul is saying is that his relationship with Jesus is so intimate that his whole existence receives meaning from his salvation. So to live is because of and for Jesus. And to die would be a gain. It would be a spiritual profit that he would get to sooner be unified with Jesus, which is the expectation all along. On this eve of Feast of Trumpets, I guess we're on the eve, even though it's morning, it seems weird. It is the eve of the Feast of Trumpets. I am so thankful for these words of Paul. To clarify what I believe each and every believer are called to. Earnest expectation. Paul is confident that he'll be saved on that final day after the trumpet sounds. He looks forward to Jesus' coming. He is certain he won't have terror or gloom or fear, but that he awaits that day. He's equally certain that each and every situation will turn out for God's plan. Not because of some pie-in-the-sky misguided understanding that the world wants to cherish, but because he has so surrendered to God's purpose. My friends, I pray that each of us would have this same confidence. Confidence that when Jesus returns, we will be found weighed and measured and called according to his purpose. And that each day, each circumstance, each situation would be one that we can expect and be confident that God is going to work out not for our will, but for his. I believe that this same deliverance, this same salvation, 
that Paul calls us to, the Lord wants to provide to us today. I pray that if there is anything, anything in our lives that we are not expecting the Lord to do, that we are not aligned with his purpose, that we will wait a minute no further. Amen. Just his hands been set.